What is up, One Week Season fam? It is Saturday afternoon. Football starts tomorrow. I have my herbal tea. And with that, I am ready to dive into the first One Week Season chat pod. Uh, the reason I started this little solo pod, first solo pod I'm doing, is I am pretty busy during the week creating content for the site. Uh, once we get into week two, obviously had a little extra time week one because content came out so early. Once we get into week two, I don't really have time to answer a lot of questions on Twitter. Uh, I don't handle the one week season emails anymore. So this chat pod gives us an opportunity for you guys to ask questions. We've gotten some slate specific questions. Uh, I will answer the ones that uh, were not answered in necessarily in the article or in the Square Table podcast with Levitan. And we've gotten a lot of strategy questions, which I think is really cool. Uh, one of the things I was most excited about with this site is, uh, well, when I first announced it in March, I kind of, I called it sort of a replacement for the expensive personal coaching model. So if you're not familiar with what that typically runs, personal coaching and DFS, typically it's uh, anywhere from 75 to 150 an hour for personal coaching. So a quick note on personal coaching, I do think it can be valuable. I was at the DraftKings baseball live final a couple of years ago and had two different guys there who told me they would not have made it without the personal coaching that they did with Dave Potts, cheese is good. If you are a uh, baseball MLB DFSer and you are not following Dave Potts, you absolutely should. The only person to ever win a million dollars twice in DFS. A super sharp guy, really nice guy, really cool guy. Uh, I believe he's at Dave Potts 2 on Twitter. Dave Potts is already taken. Um, back to the training and being able to share information, I think that one of the most important things we can do in DFS is constantly learn. And bringing it back to Dave, one of the coolest things for me in DFS was I was speaking at the DFS Players Conference in New York City in 2015, speaking on football, and uh, I did two different hour-long sessions. And Dave sat in on both of them with a notebook and was taking notes the whole time. Obviously, one of the best MLB DFSers in existence. He's pretty good at NFL as well. But just that desire to continue learning was really cool to me. Something that I try to carry into all areas. There are still some DFS players whose rosters I like to study and break down each week to see what they were thinking. And I think that as we continue learning, we continue to grow as DFS players. So as the rest of the field gets sharper, we get even more sharp and continue to stay ahead of the curve. So with that, I am going to dive into these questions for this week. Um, and we'll get to as many of them as we can. If I miss your questions, I apologize. Uh, quite a few came in this week. We expect, obviously, more to come in in future weeks once this podcast gets some traction and people realize it exists. So we'll see how we do. Um, as you guys know, I have a tendency to dive in a little bit deep on things. So. If I'm not able to get to everything, hopefully I'm able to provide strong value on the things we do get to. First question is from Neil Steinberg on Twitter at Neil Steinberg. 
And he said he keeps coming back to Mariota in cash. Uh, he said, who I don't seem to like in the NFL edge. Coaching upgrade, tons of pieces, uh, and reasonable over-under. Is this just a week where you can't fade Brady, Watson, and Breeze in cash? I don't think it's so much that we can't fade those top three guys, although those are the guys that I'm targeting in addition to Andy Dalton in cash games, but more so just a lot of question marks on Mariota against a team with a very good pass defense. So that's not to say that he doesn't have upside. I agree that the offense has a lot of upside this year, but I think that in cash games, it's a lot more risky than we need to be. So a quick note on that. A lot of people have asked me this week, because I, I often lump single entry tournaments and cash games in together when I'm talking about them. And people have asked about that to say, um, you know, should these always be put together or how do I separate what's what? So for me, I actually build a roster uh, with the, well, it used to be the, the $1,000 tournament on DraftKings. Last year it went up to 1500 This year it's 2000 So I build my roster with the $2,000 tournament in mind. And I build it trying to build a roster. It's a small field tournament, 300 entries, obviously a lot of top players. And I build a roster thinking, what do I think can win this tournament? And it has very little to do with ownership from the outset. It has to do with who I think the best plays are. Often we have superior information. We need to keep in mind that a lot of the field is listening to the same people. And, um, this is not throwing shade on any individuals in DFS, but a lot of people who are giving advice aren't actually doing their own research. There's a couple people they listen to, Evan Silva, Chris Raybon, and then these ideas gain traction and everybody gets on the same ideas and chalk builds up on guys that aren't necessarily the best play. So Melvin Gordon is a good example this week. Melvin Gordon is a very good play in week one. Is he clearly the best play in week one? No. And currently our ownership projections have him over 30% in the millionaire maker. So that's just one example of how these things build up so quickly and how when we think for ourselves, we can separate from the field. So personally, I like Kareem Hunt more than Melvin Gordon this week. Um, I think if we played out this slate 100 times, Hunt would outscore him probably 60 times. Melvin Gordon would outscore Hunt 40 times. Um, I just play the guy who I think is the better play. Then I usually put that same team into cash games. And if there are any things I need to change, like this week I'm kind of eyeing David Johnson in the 2K tournament and will probably pivot down to Alvin Kamara just because it's not necessary to take that risk. Um, but that's kind of how I play things. So somebody like Mariota, that's a guy that if I were using him on my single entry tournament lineup or my high dollar tournament lineup, I would remove him from my cash game lineup just because it's not necessary to take on that risk at such low ownership. Um, granted, I'm the guy who's playing Cortland Sutton this week in cash, knowing that he'll be under 1% owned. So I think if you are convinced about a play, you think it's the best play, roll with it. That is the way I would handle that. Are there going to be any lists available on Twitter to follow beat writers specifically for NFL? If anyone has a list of, I know that there's a, a list out there of the, like the best beat writer from each team. Somebody tweeted that out a couple weeks ago, but I did not save it. If somebody could tweet out a list of that, I will retweet it. I don't have a list. Uh, another good way to go about things is to see who Evan Silva and Adam Levitan follow and follow a lot of those beat writers. 
or you can just follow Levitan and Silva. Really, their Twitter feeds are incredible for just uh, accessing the most important information that's coming out each week. Uh, next question, I've gotten this from a few people. Um, this is from Miami Keynes. Excited to submit my first pod question. What do you think of Giants shifting to a new defensive scheme? Does that make you consider other tight ends before Austin Safarian Jenkins? Yes, it does make me consider other tight ends. That's kind of a combination of Austin Safarian Jenkins being kind of a more high-risk guy anyway because you're really targeting touchdowns. He's not a big yardage guy. The Giants have switched to a 3-4 defense this year. It could help against tight ends. Personnel is still a question mark. I expect them to be a bottom 10 team against tight ends still. So I'm really less concerned about the change in defensive scheme than I am the player himself. I would prefer Charles Clay from a floor perspective and uh, Ryan Griffin, Jack Doyle on the lower ends of the price range from a ceiling perspective. I do think that Austin Sparron Jenkins is still in play. He's a guy to consider in tournaments, especially if you go with a Jaguar stack. But um, but yeah, there are a couple reasons to be concerned there. The change in defensive scheme is one of them and definitely a sharp point. But uh, I do still expect the Giants to be poor against tight ends this season. That's something that we can allow to play out a little bit as we move forward. Matt Brennan asked a good question about factoring and ownership projections. And what I really liked about this question, Matt, was where you said, in theory, should I not look at ownership until after I read Silva 2? Um, for anyone who uh, hasn't seen this, I strongly recommend two reads every week, and that is one, the NFL Edge, and two, Evan Silva's Matchups column, which is free on Roto World every week. It gets posted usually, usually a little bit after Thursday Night Football kicks off, sometimes later than that, sometimes early Friday morning, but you can always find it there. It is more focused on season long, but tons of good statistics, good breakdowns of the matchups, and can really help supplement your thoughts on the DFS slate. Another cool thing is that Evan and I tend to have about 80 to 85% overlap on our takes, but there tends to be about 15 to 20% differentiation, uh, which provides a good and free opportunity to balance my thoughts with the thoughts of somebody else who is also incredibly sharp and does great research. Um, regarding ownership, so this is an important thing for me in trying to really maximize profitability. I, I am not a huge proponent of ownership projections. We have them on the site because people love them. We have them on the site because they can be a great tool. Uh, we have them on the site because UF Collective, who is doing the ownership projections, is an awesome team, really great to work with. But I think that people overuse them. So people go to them first. If you've missed me talking about this, um, just want to dig into this for a second. If you've read me talking about this, bear with us for a moment. Basically, uh, a lot of people start in the wrong place. They look at ownership projections and then from there decide who they should play. Uh, I got another question that I will probably skip over if I see it while going through these. There was along these same lines of, should I just chop the highest owned guys off my list at the start of the week and move forward from there in tournaments? Um, there's so much nuance to all of this. Sometimes a guy who's the highest owned is the best play and you need to have him in order to win. I remember one week when Antonio Brown was 48% owned and he put up, 
over 50 points on DraftKings. I think it was, might have been just shy of 50. It was against the Raiders. That was probably 2016. And so, yeah, he was, he was 50% owned, but if you don't have those 50 points he scored, you're dead in the water. Sometimes the best play is the best play, and you have to play them if there's just so much certainty on the play. If it's, if it's almost impossible for the guy to fail, I think you still use him. If weather weren't a concern in Cleveland, I think you still use James Conner um, in cash games, obviously, and then even consider him in tournaments if there weren't other good value this week. So there are situations where you still play the high-owned guy. Uh, going back to the original question from Matt, though, I love the idea of assessing all the information and picking your favorite plays before you ever look at ownership percentage. I think that's extremely important, extremely valuable to do. And um, so, yeah, in theory, I would love to read the NFL Edge, which, by the way, I read the NFL Edge every week uh, two or three times after I write it. Tuesday and Wednesday is such a crazy set of days. The information flies in so fast. I do the research as I write, so uh, there's a lot that I miss that I don't store in my mind while I'm writing everything. So I go back and read it on Thursday, and then I read it again over the weekend, take the same notes you guys are taking, and uh, build my rosters from there. So yeah, I would optimally like to read the NFL Edge, read Silva's matchups, decide who my favorite plays are, and then look at ownership. So on a week like this, uh, guys like Carlos Hyde, Kareem Hunt, who I like a lot, they're coming in low owned. That's just a bonus. I'll still play them in cash games because they're my favorite plays. Um, well, Carlos Hyde's up in the air depending on weather. If I'm uh, using Connor, if the weather looks a little bit better for cash games and Hyde in tournaments, if the weather looks rough, which we're going to get to at the end of this podcast, then I will stick with Hyde in both formats. Anyhow, going with the guy you think is the best play is almost always the best move. And then if the guy you think is the best play is also shaping up as the highest owned guy, that's when you have to do some next level assessment to say, what percentage chance does this guy have of failing? If I fade him, is there a chance that I can move past the field or am I just overthinking things? I also think limiting the amount of information you take in is really important. Uh, a lot of DFS quote, research that people pay for and consume is just opinions. And when you go in and just listen to opinions, it can be really difficult to assess who the best plays are. When you instead go in and read research, uh, read the NFL Edge, read matchups. I know that if you're still a Roto-Grinders subscriber, uh, I know that Roto-Grinders has in introduced a lot of cool advanced analytics stuff, things like that that you can take in and use and apply to decide who the best plays are, then you can narrow down your own list before looking at ownership projections. I think that's a really plus EV way to go. At Sports Battles SB asked, as someone who plays 400 to 500 attorneys on DK, are there any specific attorneys that you recommend? Uh, I recommend bankroll building through single entry tourneys and small field tourneys. So there are some cool tourneys that are, um, I'm trying to think specifically because I, I don't pay super close attention because I just go through and register for 
all the tourneys, but I think that there's a really cool $150 tournament. There's a small field tournament, maybe three entry max. Uh, I would strongly recommend something like that. Uh, I strongly recommend if you're playing with a little more money, getting into some smaller field, higher dollar tournaments. That's really how I built my bankroll early on. I was playing on Draft Street in 2015 baseball and playing a lot of $109 tournaments and $150 tournaments, $200 tournaments, whatever they had on there. They introduced smaller fields of players, so it was easier to get to first place. Uh, and so rather than spreading out $100 across five $20 entries, I would narrow down to my favorite team and put it in a $100 tournament. Uh, I think that's a much better way to build bankroll. Obviously, it introduces a little more variance into the week. You'll have more losing weekends, but your winning weekends will bump up your bankroll quite a bit more. So uh, if playing 400 to 500 and focusing strictly on tournaments, I would uh, play a few large field tournaments just to take those lottery style shots, but primarily focus on single entry, uh, limited entry, small field tournaments, because that's really an awesome way to build your bankroll. Um, there's really uh, just as much groupthink or nearly as much groupthink in those $150, $333, even $1,000 tournaments as there is in lower dollar tournaments. So by just playing your favorite plays, you can still gain a nice edge there. Trillwill831 asked about allocating bankroll to the Thursday to Monday slate. How much do I usually do? I usually do none. Not because I think it's negative EV. I just, I finish the NFL edge at about 2 or 3 a.m. on Thursday morning. And Thursday is kind of my first day to settle in without things being crazy. I use the afternoon to read through the NFL edge, clean up any typos that I missed the day before, um, put in my initial pass at notes. Uh, I did used to play the Thursday action on FanDuel, the Thursday to Monday, because rosters locked Thursday night. And people couldn't make changes, and I had better information than most of my competition had on Thursday. That was a great way to get some money because people couldn't make changes after that. There was one week I got Odell Beckham at like 3% ownership and by Sunday he was 30% owned. And I ended up winning, I think it was 10K or 20K that weekend just from locking in a team on Thursday night. Uh, now that there's late swap on all the sites, I'm less interested in the Thursday slate. Uh, I do still think the second part to your question is um, should I put in my Sunday roster on the Thursday night slates just to take advantage of people who have to get action in there and play poor players? That doesn't happen as much as it used to. You do get about 3% of the ownership on Thursday night. It still goes way overboard. The problem is if you just use your Sunday roster, sometimes there's a great play on Thursday night that you end up not being able to win without. Like Julio Jones this week, if you just throw in your Sunday roster, you miss out on that, and then the people who go overweight on Thursday night all have him. So uh, I think it's kind of a toss-up. I think if you play the Thursday slate, you still have to look at that game and decide if there are any plays that you would play on the weekend. Uh, David Wiles, how do you feel about Mike Gillisley now that he's listed as the number two running back for the Saints? 
Gillisley could get eight to ten carries if they use him to run out the clock in the second half. He could get carries from the one-yard line. Granted, the Saints will also spread out the defense from the one-yard line um, to allow Kamara to get in there. It's not like it's not like they're just going to go power runs at the goal line. So Gillisley, I think, is a very, very low floor. His ceiling is probably about equal to what Carlos Hyde or Rex Burkhead or James Conner could get but his chances of hitting that ceiling are low. So I really just have no interest in Gillisley. Obviously, there's a couple paths to him having a good game. But if we played out this slate 100 times, he would kill your roster a lot more often than he would help it this week. Justin Jones at Vapeman77. Do you play the same core of players on every site? Say your core is Dalton, A.B., Gronk, Ravens, for example. Would you start your build there and fill in? Would you play Dalton on every site as your main lineup, or do you switch it up? So one strategy that goes overlooked is building a team for one site. So I always build for DraftKings, and then taking that same team and playing it on another site. Uh, I've had really good weekends on FanDuel, and, and I don't always do this. You know, If you look and it just doesn't make sense, then you have to adjust things. But I've done this before because with pricing being so different, ownership changes a lot. And so sometimes what's just a, just a good play, it's a good play. And you put it on another site because pricing's different. People aren't thinking about that play the way they are on a different site. And you can capture low ownership just by doing that and still have a great team. Um, I think if you have core plays, you play those core plays on every site. Uh, one nit I have to pick on this one is uh, the core that you laid out, which is Dalton, A.B., Gronk, and Ravens. Uh, if you move it from one side to another, you're starting with all expensive players, and you really should start from the bottom with your favorite value plays. So if you move, it won't matter this week because there's so much good value. But on a typical week, if your core is for expensive guys and then you move them over to another site, you might end up having to take suboptimal value, which you obviously don't want to do. So I would encourage uh, the core to include your favorite low-priced plays, the guys that you feel confident can get you a top score um, compared to other guys in their price range. I think that's important as well when we talk about this. But in general, yes, I think you can move your core from site to site. Obviously, very easy from DraftKings to Fantasy Draft as well. Bison player 54 asked something we've kind of covered, but there's one little note I want to touch on about this. As a cash single entry double ups player, how do you factor in ownership percentage in cash? For instance, Melvin Gordon this week at nearly 50% owned. So the I don't, as I've alluded to, I don't factor in ownership when um, we're at the higher end of the price range, essentially is, is how it goes for me, uh, unless it's extreme. So I think that Kareem Hunt's a better play than Melvin Gordon. Again, I think uh, 60%, 65% of the time Hunt would outscore Gordon this week. So I'll roll with him and not worry about the ownership because I'm not trying to do what the field's doing. I'm trying to do what I think is best. So my roster as a whole will be different. If I fall short there, I'll make up ground in another spot. At the high end, the place where I will kind of reconsider is something like David Johnson and Alvin Kamara 
where the uh, there's really no clear favorite between the two. And with Camara being so high owned in cash, I will probably use David Johnson in my main tournament lineup and pivot down to Camara in cash games. That's not set in stone yet, but that's what I'm thinking right now. I build my rosters from about uh, 5 p.m. on the West Coast until 2 a.m. on Saturdays, my final rosters. So recording this before that, but that's kind of where I'm thinking. Uh, on the lower end of the price range, uh, it becomes a little more important to pivot just because there's less certainty at the lower end of the price range. So I will pivot to ownership sometimes. Like, uh, again, if the weather stays clear enough in Cleveland for Connor to be involved in the pass game, I will probably pivot to him from Hyde in cash. Just because those value guys, if you miss out on them, it can be really tough to make up that ground. Um, But in general, and this is really, this is going to answer a lot of the questions that are being asked about cash games this week. And I think this is an important point. And honestly, I should have bled off with this in case any of you got bored after the first 20 minutes and stopped listening. Uh, But a lot of people play cash games to not lose. That's their thinking. And so everybody pivots to all the high-owned guys. And you can get different perspectives on this. Uh, Notorious and I have had an argument conversation about this once. It was 2016, week one, about Dak Prescott. and. he was essentially saying the, you know, you just have to play him because everybody's playing him and Notorious does very well in cash games and I do very well in cash games taking a different approach. So there are different perspectives on this. You don't necessarily have to side with mine. Um, but I think that uh, for me, I have found that my ROI is a lot higher when I play cash games to win. So I take what I think are the best plays, try to worry a lot less about ownership and uh, what year was it? It was 2014. I went 14 and three in double ups. 2015, I went 12 and five in double ups. And those were the years when I was the most focused on just playing to win. Uh, the last couple of years, it was more like 10 and seven in double ups throughout the 17 week season, thinking too much about ownership and uh, what I needed to do there. And when we when we play to win and we have good information, I think that we put ourselves in a lot better position for cash games you're no longer sitting in that 60% to 40% range where you're just hoping to, okay, hopefully I get a, a few more points and pass the cut line. Instead, you're usually sitting in that top 15% on good weekends and um, you know, your bad weekends, they were going to be losing weekends anyway. So I think that that's a much better way to go about cash games is play to win. If you think Melvin Gordon is the best play, you play him. If you think he's not, you don't play him. Uh, that is the way I would look at things there. Melvin Gordon, I guess, isn't the best example here because uh, I do still think he's a strong play this week. So you can make the case for pivoting to him the same way I'm pivoting, likely pivoting to Kamara in cash games. But someone like Keenan Allen, where I think that uh, if we played out the slate 100 times, Michael Thomas, Antonio Brown, A.J. Green would all outscore him at least 70% of the time. That's the kind of guy that I'm not going to pivot to him just because he's high owned this week. Uh, Real quick on the Keenan Allen thing, just to reiterate, because I don't want you to make a decision based on what I'm saying. uh, Please read the breakdown in the NFL edge. Uh, As I laid out, the matchup does not set up as well for him as everyone thinks. As I also laid out, there's a huge talent gap between Keenan Allen and the guys he will be going against. 
and he has the talent to smash in that matchup. So if you want to side with ownership in cash games, uh, if that's the approach you're wanting to take, play Keenan Allen. Um, there is still obviously a strong chance that he has a good game, and a bad game from him is going to be 12 points on DraftKings, uh, 9 points on FanDuel. So I'm totally fine with the Keenan Allen play. My point is that I'm not playing him myself because I do like these other plays quite a bit more. Uh, Chillin072, Coach Stewart. Uh, this is a great question. I watched all of the Cards preseason games, and the commentators mentioned frequently that Arizona D will be playing a lot more zone. Can this change how we look at the Skins pass offense? Uh, yes and no. This was accounted for in the write-up of the NFL Edge. Steve Wilkes came over to the Cardinals and runs a primarily zone defense. I think last year the Cardinals finished second in the NFL in a percentage of plays in which they ran a zone defense. Maybe they were first in the NFL. Um, the Arizona Cardinals were primarily a man coverage defense. This is going to be more similar to what Seattle runs um, or what the uh, Panthers have run with Josh Norman and um, James Radbury the last several years, where Patrick Peterson is going to stay on the left side of the field, stationary there. Uh, that's the big thing for me is that um, – Alex Smith will be able to work away from Patrick Peterson. Um, zone coverage does make it a little bit easier on somebody like Jameson Crowder to find soft spots in the middle, maybe get matched up on linebackers a little bit more. So uh, that bumps him up a bit, but it also lowers the yards after catch upside. So in all, I think it's a wash on this week uh, is kind of how I'm viewing that. But throughout the scope of the season, there will be situations where this zone defense makes a difference compared to what we would have expected last year. Odell Beckham in tournaments this week from Brian M731. Odell Beckham, um, I'll start with this. The reason to play a low-owned guy or the reason to play a super talented guy in a bad spot is if you think he has weak winning upside. So honestly, it could stop right there. If you think that Odell Beckham has weak winning upside against this Jaguar secondary, you play him. Or at least you can justify playing him uh, in tournaments. I would only do it in large field tournaments where you're trying to beat thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. Um, I don't, I have too much respect for the Jaguars secondary. And I know that you can look at DeAndre Hopkins' stat line against them last year, Antonio Brown's stat line against them last year, and justify this play. Uh, for me, I avoid the Viking secondary and Jaguar secondary as a rule. And because of that, I don't put myself in a position to have to overthink things. And most weeks, it's an extremely profitable way to go. Um, but with that said, yes, Odell Beckham is a guy who could do this. I brought up in the NFL edge that the Jags were one of the top teams last year in preventing yards after catch. So even if they move Beckham to the slot to get him away from Jalen Ramsey and throw a quick slant to him to get the ball in his hands, which they will do throughout the game, he would still have a tough time breaking off one of his long plays. All that said, he could absolutely do it. I won't be on Beckham this week. I'll have 0% exposure. That's how I feel about him but he is the type of player that you could justify because he could break open the slate at low ownership. From Amando7478, 
Uh, I have a conundrum where out of the 20 players I've chosen this week, I'm able to build up to three different lineups with solid floor ceiling element. Is it optimal to use all three evenly or just roll with one core lineup? Uh, first off, um, I love that you brought up the floor ceiling element. If you have not yet read the DFS training course, uh, playing NFL DFS for profit that I put up on the site this year, it is available to all subscribers. I think it's something that's really useful. It was really useful to me to write it. I've read it since then just to refresh my thoughts on some of the things I put in there. Um, if you are looking for some NFL DFS action to pay attention to on Monday and Tuesday, that's something that I would recommend reading. Um, as far as understanding how to build a roster that has a shot at winning and maximizing your ROI throughout the season. Um, for this question, I like to boil things down to one roster most weeks. And typically I feel that I can narrow things down to my absolute favorite roster each week. If I can't, I would much prefer going with three lineups to two. Uh, anytime I've gone with two lineups, I tend to get one that cashes or finishes in the money in tournaments and one that doesn't. And it's kind of like that second team that you're just not really as sure on, but you think you should probably put it in, ends up cutting out a lot of your profits from the week. If it's a situation where you're having a hard time narrowing down three lineups and they're all full of plays that you put in your player pool and you really like, I think that's totally fine to roll with three lineups because um, hopefully you're still looking at 67% of your teams finishing in the money, even if one team falls out and you're still getting a nice ROI on the weekend without putting yourself at risk of taking that one team that stays out of the money. Uh, sometimes all three teams can finish in the money as well. And so I think if you have a sharp list going with three or even five teams where you Take your list, build your teams from there, absolutely works. The way I wouldn't do three or five teams is if you're building without a player pool you've already built. If you put together a good player pool, though, these are the guys you like. I think it's worthwhile to throw in three or five different teams on weeks when you can't quite narrow it down. Matt Brennan, again, I love this question. Does it make sense to mix in a tier three play for a tier one play when they're lower owned? In tournaments, absolutely. So those tier three plays for me, and this is how I categorize things. I encourage you to come up with a way that you are breaking down your favorite plays. But for me, laid this out on the site, laid this out on the player grid. But uh, tier one are the guys that I think have a low, very, very low likelihood of price considered failure. So basically, I'm paying up for this guy. He's not going to have a bad game. It's going to be very difficult for him to have a bad game, and he has tons of upside. Um, lower priced guy, it's going to be very difficult for him to have a bad point per dollar game. That could be somebody like Carlos Hyde, Alex Collins, Jack Doyle. Hard for them to have a low point per dollar game this week, and they have really nice upside for the price. That's my core guys, is guys who I think it's going to be tough for them to fail, and they have a ton of upside for the price. Uh, tier three is guys who I think have a higher likelihood of failing, but they have tons of upside for the price. So that would be like a Tyrell Williams this week. Tyrell Williams could get 20 to 25 points. He could also get five to seven points. Um, there is a clear path to those 25 points, right? So because of that, um, he is in tier three. He's a guy I'm considering in tournaments 
And I think that if you're looking at tournaments, uh, the larger tournament size you get into, the more it makes sense to put in one of your tier three plays. Uh, again, these player pools, your tiers, optimally would be made before looking at ownership percentages so that your thinking isn't clouded there. And then you have this tier three guy and you say, then you look at ownership percentage and you say, okay, this guy, I think he has tons of upside. Sure, I'm taking on a little more risk, but he's going to be 5% owned or 3% owned. That's when you take a shot on that guy, especially in larger field tournaments. When you make uh, thoughts, when you, when you take thoughts like that and turn them into your plays, you're essentially ensuring that you're going to have more duds than you would otherwise have. And this is something that Bales dug into a lot a few years ago that really transformed the way people were playing DFS is you're going to have more duds that way, but your winning weeks are going to be uh, like way greater in terms of ROI. So it is worthwhile. It's also something that Doug Peterson has brought into his play calling and um, approaches to games is take a few more risks if the payoff is worth the risk. So uh, in this instance of a tier three play where you already know, hey, this guy has lots of upside. I'm a little more concerned about his floor. This would be a Russell Wilson for me this week. This would be a Tyrell Williams for me this week. Um, and then you say, okay, well, ownership looks like this. So it's worth taking a shot on this guy because the ROI is so much greater. Awesome question here about overexposure to an offense. Um, how many pats is too many pats in your cash lineup on DraftKings? Laid out uh, a lineup and then asked if three pats is too risky. Um, this one has Brady, Burkhead, and Gronk. So when a team has an implied total of, say, 28 or more, 27 or more, um, and I don't usually process things through that lens of the Vegas totals. I process it through what I think an offense can do. But the easiest way is to look at the Vegas totals. So the Saints this week, the Patriots this week. Um, you're basically looking at a team that's expected to put up a lot of yards, probably around 400 total yards and around four touchdowns. In that case, it makes perfect sense to take three guys from one team, especially with price considered on a guy like Burkhead because there's just, it, it's going to be so um, easy for all of those guys to reach value in, in cash. We know where the points are flowing on this team, so it makes a lot of sense to do that. Um, on the Saints, same thing with Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara, and Drew Brees. Those three guys are so integral to that offense, and that offense has such a low likelihood of failure this week that you can put all three guys on a cash game team and feel like you're locking in at least 60 points right there, and that's a great way to go. Now, in tournaments, it is very, very difficult to win large field tournaments with three high-priced guys from the same team um, because you're effectively canceling out the chances of hitting the nuts on the week. So if you go with uh, a low-priced guy and a high-priced guy on a team or a couple low-priced guys and a high-priced guy, or this week, say, an Andy Dalton, A.J. Green, John Ross – you could still hit the nuts that week because John Ross is so cheap that if he puts up 20 points, that's totally fine. With Kamara and Michael Thomas, if they both put up 20 or one puts up 20 and one puts up 25, 
that's great for cash games, but it's going to put you behind that wide receiver who gets you 30 or 35 points or that running back who gets you 30 or 35 points. So in large field tournaments, um, if you're going with three guys from one team, the Steelers are really the only team that has ever produced winning lineups in large field tournaments with um, Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, and Ben Roethlisberger. Um, all other teams where things get spread out a little bit more, it's a, kind of a losing proposition in large field tournaments, but still a very strong play in cash games. I think that that's an underrated strategy in cash to just say, look, I'm going to take this offense that I know is going to have a great game, and I'm going to take several guys from it knowing I'm locking in those points. Uh, great cash game strategy, in my opinion. Running back defense stack in cash from Silver Fox 4. And that looks like a zero in Fox. So Silver 4-0-X-4. Interested in your thoughts on a running back defense stack in cash. It's been shown to have a lower correlation than we always assumed. But absolutely, it makes sense. It's a positively correlated play. It's not something that you have to go out of your way to do. But something like Alex Collins and the Ravens defense makes a lot of sense. I think one reason why the correlation has been shown to be less heavy than we expect is because each situation is unique. Someone like David Johnson would actually lose points if his defense is doing great because David Johnson's value, so much of his value comes from catching passes. So if his defense is doing great, Cardinals are playing with the lead. He's catching fewer passes. Someone like Alex Collins, on the other hand, who's a two-down back, we expect the Ravens' defense to smash this week. We expect the Bills to have a tough time, which means we expect Alex Collins to get extra carries, be salting away the game late. Um, that's one where it makes a lot more sense. And so I think that the correlation would probably prove to be higher if somebody cared to dig into all the numbers of two-down backs and good defenses and what the correlation is there. Um, but I definitely think that is a good way to go in cash games. At the worst, it's not negative, that's for sure. Barney Fife, NFL underscore Barn, bringing the heat with this question. Outside the box thinking, am I crazy to consider Brown's defense on FanDuel while also rostering two Steelers? Uh, thinking of Big Ben's poor 1 p.m. Eastern time road splits along with Antonio Brown uptick with Bell out. People get so scared about rostering a player against the defense that they're using. And the reason we roster defense is for sacks and turnovers. Uh, this is something that Levitan and I started talking about a couple of years ago. People have finally started thinking in that way instead of just thinking about point prevention. But the difference in points scored by your defense between uh, you know, allowing seven points and allowing 21 points is so minimal compared to the upside of sacks and turnovers. So Antonio Brown could have a great game and the Browns defense could also still have a good game. And that's important to note. People will look at your roster and say, what is this guy thinking? Or this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I know that when I do that, sometimes people think that and some people look at it and say, what what was JM thinking here? Let me dig into this to see what I can learn. And other people just say, God, this guy's an idiot. You know, you deal with that, whatever. People look at your lineup and think it's dumb. But it actually makes quite a bit of sense when you look at things from a macro perspective of why we're um, putting the roster together this way. 
On FanDuel, the Browns' defense is incredibly cheap. So I do think it makes sense, especially if weather is going to be a factor, to um, roster the Browns' defense, and that doesn't mean that Antonio Brown can't have a good game. Uh, Jeremy Red, what impact will the offensive line issues Carolina has uh, have on Christian McCaffrey? And why does Adam Levitan continue to erroneously state the Cowboys' offensive line is not very good? Throwing shade at Levitan, the Cowboys' offensive line is dealing with some serious injuries. Travis Frederick will not be playing this week at center. Um, They're banged up in other spots. So uh, there are concerns on the Cowboys' offensive line. I think they're still good. I think they're entering this week as a top 10 unit or maybe top 12, definitely not top 5. Um, impact of the offensive line issues, Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Christian McCaffrey has already shown repeatedly that he's not that strong between the tackles. I mean, if you watch him, he just doesn't look quick to the hole. He looks hesitant. He looks like he's thinking instead of reacting. And then that line is bad. So I do think that, um, that is very much a consideration, not only this week, but throughout the season, obviously, if his carries do spike to 15 plus a game and he's getting the seven catches a game, um, he still becomes a really interesting play each week on PPR sites. Question about rostering Drew Brees, Michael Thomas and and Peyton Barber. Uh, Technically the story you're telling there with that roster is quote, I think the bucks will take a lead and hold the lead for much of the game. Uh, with that roster alignment. And that's an unlikely story to happen. So when you're putting together that roster, the optimal situation would be Bucks taking a lead, Barber getting a lot of carries, Breeze to Thomas with the Saints in catch-up mode. Obviously unlikely to happen. Um, Can Barber be a good play this week still? Uh, Can he still be played with Breeze and Thomas? Yes. Uh, I have enough concerns about the game script that he's below Burkhead and Hyde and Connor for me. But I do like Barber. I like the matchup. I think that he'll still get um, at least 70 or 80 yards on the ground and and two or three catches. So I think he can post a fine game. Uh, He's going to have a hard time topping 100 rushing yards. And so if he doesn't score, he is going to hurt your lineup more than you'd like compared to the other value that's out there. So the big question is, is will Peyton Barber score this week? If we expect probably two touchdowns from the Bucs, then there's maybe a 30% chance that he gets one of those touchdowns. That's about how I would look at things in that spot. Say hey, Jay, 24. Values are plenty, and with a single lineup, it's tough to narrow down to my final plays. Any thoughts on how to organize? So one thought would be going back to what we talked about earlier with going three or five rosters. Um, Honestly, I haven't even been thinking about that for myself because I'm so entrenched in this single lineup philosophy of mine, but I might start thinking about that after I get the pod up there and answer a few more Twitter questions and emails. Um, There's a lot of guys I like, so maybe go three to five lineups this week. This is a strange week. Typically pricing is so tight on, on DraftKings especially that you really have to um, get down to that one lineup that's, that's the best lineup in order to max your ROI for the season. My best seasons have been when I've been consistently focused on getting down to one lineup. With that said, I'm the one who's always preaching that every situation is different. 
Um, don't just apply the whole to one individual micro unit. So yeah, I mean, this week it would actually make sense to go multiple lineups in, in cash or three, if you go three lineups and you enter three max tourneys with all of those. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm currently thinking about that myself. Um, another way to do it is to just say, look, these are all good plays. Um, which ones do I think are the best? If you can't get it down to the best or close to the best, then that's when it makes sense to go multiple lineups. Again, you will kill your ROI if you're just building lineups out of thin air, out of all the pieces you've read throughout the week, all the things you've heard throughout the week. And then you're like, well, I like this lineup. I like this lineup. I like this lineup. I'm just going to put them all in. Um, but if you are building your own player pool, if you're taking notes on the games, building your own player pool, which by the way, guys, sorry that we did not come up with a way for all your notes to just go to one spot together. That's something we're going to work on for next year. Getting the notes thing was uh, really complicated for the development team in the first place. And these were all kind of ideas that I was building uh, on my own throughout the off season. And I thought the notes function would be really cool. It is really cool. Um, and we set up the functionality awesome with being able to do it uh, on the games and then look at them all on your profile page. So a couple of things you want to improve next year is being able to um, somehow put in the notes straight from the game without having to scroll down. I know all of you guys will like that. And then hopefully put all of your notes in a single document. So we're going to work on that next off season. In the meantime, um, you know, starting out and still some pretty cool stuff with the way it all functions. Um, so yeah, what I've been doing is I, I read the games, take my notes. I read the NFL Edge twice, um, put my notes in, and then condense them down to um, on the resources and glossary page. There's a How I Use Game Notes article where you can see what I'm doing. And I think it's a really cool way to do it. Um, then I read Silva's Matchups column, read through my notes again to see if there's anything I wanted to change. And then I read through the NFL Edge again. And then usually after I do the podcast with Levitan, I've picked up some new thoughts and make a few final changes to my notes. From my notes, I build my tiers. Here's my tier one plays, tier two, tier three. That's my process. From there, you would optimally look at ownership percentage. Um, and then if you're saying, well, I really can't narrow down these tiers to my absolute favorite, that's the point when you would build three or five teams just using those favorite plays. And then that's the way that building three or five teams increases ROI instead of lowering ROI. Uh, question about from 23, Sarks 23, uh, digging into historical data on Houston tight ends against New England and what New England tries to do and asking about Ryan Griffin saying that I seemed lukewarm on him. Am I missing something? I wouldn't say lukewarm. I just think that the floor is a little bit lower. There's more guesswork here than, um, than this just being an automatic play. I think that the ceiling is very nice. In fact, Levitan was wearing a Yukon shirt last night. And when he was first getting on, on camera before we started the show, my first question to him was if he was wearing that in honor of Ryan Griffin. <laughs> so Ryan Griffin's definitely on my mind this week. He still might end up on my cash game roster. I'm, I'm messing around with that um, of whether I want to make it up to Doyle for a little bit more safety. But yeah, I, I think he has the same ceiling as Doyle. Uh, the question is, is the floor the same? Because 
there is a little more guesswork about what the Patriots are going to try to do on defense and how uh, the Texans play calling will react as a result, how Deshaun Watson will react as a result. So, um, yeah, not just totally clear cut like it is for some other guys, but I do like Griffin quite a bit. Uh, is there a way that we can project ownership on fantasy draft using DraftKings projections? Yeah, basically just translate them over. A little bit changes with the extra flex spot. Pricing is a little bit different, but the ownership carries over really heavily between one site and another. I think what most people actually do, there's some people who just play fantasy draft, but most people who play fantasy draft actually play DraftKings as well, and a lot of people build their DraftKings roster and then just move it over to fantasy draft. And then they might have seven, eight hundred extra dollars, or they might have a wide receiver in the flex that they want to swap over to a running back, and they just make a couple small changes. So ownership carries over pretty heavily between the two. Uh, how do you determine if a large field GPP entry is too chalky? So this is not my field of expertise. Um, I've had some success in super large field tourneys. I've had a 12th place finish in the Millionaire Maker, a 35th place finish, a 94th place finish. So three different times in the top 100. And I, and I usually don't build more than 15 or 20 teams in there. But um, the whole strategy of taking on suboptimal plays because nobody will be on them, I'm really bad at that. Um, I have so much knowledge about the games that it's hard for me to take on a guy that I just don't think is a good play. So. Um, you know, I, I've talked a couple times on the site about the Millie Maker win that Cubs fan 333 had last year. And for those of you who don't know, Cubs fan 333 is one of our one-week season uh, family members. He's actually um, the first investor into this site as well. Um, good buddy of mine, good DFS buddy of mine. And um, his process each week is – actually, this week he texted me to say – that he's listened to the audio version of the NFL Edge five times already, in addition to reading it twice. That's usually his process is he reads the NFL Edge a bunch, he listens to the podcast with Levitan and me, and then he builds his teams, and that's it. And this guy's won literally millions of dollars. And one of the things he's very good at, uh, Cal Spears as well, who's the, one of the co-founders of Roto-Grinders, they're both very good at taking on suboptimal plays that have a path to a winning weekend. So Cubs fan 333, his Millie Maker win, he just completely stacked the Texans and Seahawks game last year. In Seattle, nobody wanted a piece of the Texans, but the line had been moving up all week and he went all out and he had rosters with, um, with guys who you wouldn't want to roster. Um, but because he built 20 or 30 rosters, just the Texans Seahawks game from different angles, what could happen? He faded uh, Doug Baldwin on all of the teams, I think all 30 teams he built, and then just went off the board on the Seahawks. You know, it's crazy. That's really the way to win these large field tourneys, and I'm not comfortable recommending what's the right balance on taking bad plays just to get low ownership and all that. Um, like I said, I've also proven with the way I play it that you can just build a team of good plays and land a top finish. But it still ends up being low-owned guys. And my 12th place finish was a Bears-Lions game that for some reason nobody was on. 
and it sh- and I had to try to convince everybody on the square table that week. I guess it was the round table back then. We had Hefe with us. I had to try to convince everybody that this is actually a good game to target. Nobody nobody thought it was a good game, and it went like thirty one to thirty seven in overtime. And because people weren't on it and I had loaded up on that game, I finished 12th place. So you still really have to have low ownership in those large field tourneys. So I think that if you look at your roster and everybody's over 10% owned, you just have to say, look, this either has to go into smaller field stuff or I have to change this for the Millie Maker, for a large field GPP. Um, Long rambling answer to say, that's the way I would look at it. But I don't really spend a ton of time on all that because I build my bankroll more through um, smaller fields, tournaments, cash games, single entry. Um, so, yeah, my, my creative thought process has not been put fully to that. But from my observations, that's how I would approach the Millie Maker. Hopefully you guys are listening to this at one and a half X speed because the rambling might get a little annoying. Three questions from my boy at Laker Great One. Um, Brown and Connor, does the value override the potential concerns of playing two players from a road team with line movement towards Cleveland? Yes, because the yardage is going to be there for these guys if the weather holds. That's the last thing we're going to talk about. I'll pause recording for a moment, dig into weather, and shoot out my thoughts on that. But uh, yeah, they, I th- I, I'm not too concerned. I think the line movement is, is largely about the weather. So if the weather looks okay, I'm totally fine playing the two together. If the weather doesn't look okay, we'd have to second think things anyway. Uh, do Brady and Breeze have the same upside? Yes. Um, like literally the same. Projected totals are the same. Expected, you know, pass heaviness of each offense is the same. It's a toss-up. It's a guess as to which of them has the better game, honestly. Uh, how much difference would losing Bosa make for the Chargers defense? I think it makes a difference. I'm less excited about using them. I think the Bengals have moved above them for me now as a lower-priced defensive option for tournaments. Um, with that said, I mean, that Chargers secondary is still so legit. Casey Hayward and um, – and Desmond King, and sorry, drawing a blank on all these guys um, who I talk about all the time, and still a good pass rush. Um, this is just still a tough defense. So I think that Pat Mahomes is going to throw one or two picks, take a few sacks. I think the Chiefs are going to put up points as well, but um, I think there's still a good defense to consider, but Bosa does make a difference. All right, looks like we're going to have a lot of questions we're not going to be able to get to. I don't want to go much over an hour. Um, Saturday evening, you guys should be hanging out with friends and family or working on rosters. So um, obviously a lot of this will be valuable beyond just Saturday and Sunday. But um, I want to keep it to about an hour. And then that way, if you guys listen to it at one and a half times speed, it goes even quicker than that. Um, but Rob... Uh, who is Beat Koblitz <laughs> on Twitter. Rob asked several good questions, so I want to get to a few of these, and then I'm going to break down weather and get us out of here. Um, so first one from Rob was, uh, every once in a while there's a couple games I just have no feel for. What's your recommendation and process for working through these I have no idea games? I honestly, I have games like that too that 
even after I've broken them down, when I look at them from individual play perspectives, it's just, I don't have a feel for them. And a lot of times I miss out on some big games because of that, but I tend to try to just avoid those games. Uh, I found in the past that when I try to keep fighting on those games, it's kind of like the um, people always think you should improve your weaknesses. And realistically, we're all born with a distinct personality. And for a lot of us, our weaknesses our weaknesses and our strengths are strengths. And so it ends up being more productive to further strengthen your strengths because that makes up for your weaknesses. So uh, that's kind of the approach I take is I will focus on the teams that I have, the games I have a better feel for and um, try to get a better feel for these other games. But if I can't, I just try to leave them alone and say, look, it is what it is. Um, I'm not going to, land on any duds. I'm not going to land on any big games. I'm just going to miss that game altogether. Thoughts on quarterbacks with new teams and wide receivers. Is it risky playing, for example, Cousins and Diggs in week one when they have so little game time together? It's risky for cash, but uh, it's not that risky for tournaments. I mean, they've had a couple months together. They've had plenty of time to learn the playbook. Um, their skill sets fit really well together. So in tournaments, I think that a Cousins and Diggs pairing works perfectly fine. I think you're taking on a little bit more risk, but that doesn't mean that it's too risky or something that we should avoid. I mean, it's lower risk than the guesswork that we have to do in a lot of other spots each week. Rob also asked, um, I know you said to follow people you trust and you included Silva in the conversation uh, what happens when you two don't agree on a player? Should I listen to uh, Silva or just throw the player out? Should I listen to JM or listen to Silva or just throw the player out altogether? Um, I think this is one of the, the big things where it comes down to thinking for yourself. Um, so some, someone like Keenan Allen, I like to lay out all of the reasons why he's a good play as well, um, which is largely his usage and the talent gap between him and his opponent, and then also the reasons why he could be a bad play. Uh, my take on it is to side with the bad play side just because I don't want to take on that. What I feel is more risk than other people think there is. I don't want to take on that risk at that salary. Um, the other side of it is, you know, people will look and just see the reasons why somebody's a good play and they'll pump that up. So somebody could do that for me with Cortland Sutton. Let's say that um, somebody else that you read stepped up and gave all the reasons why Cortland Sutton is a bad play this week. Well, that doesn't mean he's a bad play. And just because I can give you the reasons he's a good play doesn't mean he'll be a good play. Uh, it just means that you have to take all the information and kind of decide where you want to stand on it. So a couple of good examples this week are, or one good example this week is Keenan Allen, because I believe that Silva is much higher on him than I am. Um, I see the reasons why it could be a bad play. And that doesn't guarantee it will be a bad play getting into the nuances of all this, but the likelihood is high enough in my mind that there's other guys I'd rather roster. And then the fact that he'll be so high owned just makes it even easier for me to make that decision. Um, that's one that I haven't second guessed all week. Melvin Gordon, I've second guessed a little because um, I think he's a great play, but, um, but the Keenan Allen one, it's like, look, if I'm wrong because of that, that's fine. I know that there's potential for him to have a good game, but I think that the risks are higher than most people are giving credit. Before we hit weather, I'm going to try to run through just a few more really quick, just so that we get to more of these and just answer them quickly. 
and not uh, expound on my thoughts quite so much. Uh, best cash game flex under 4.5K on DraftKings. Burkhead, White, Amendola, Hyde, Connor, or someone else. Um, Connor or Hyde, uh, then Amendola, then Burkhead, then White for cash. Uh, that's the way that I would go there. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me how I can like Emmanuel Sanders and Cortland Sutton and not have Keenum on my player grid. Uh, it's a very good question. I have a very good answer. Uh, it's not unrealistic for Emmanuel Sanders to go seven catches for 85 yards, get 15 and a half points, and you feel really good with what you got for the price. And for Sutton to go 575-1, and you get 18 and a half points, and you feel great about what you got for the price. Um, and for Keenum to not throw for 300 yards and not throw for multiple touchdowns. Like he could still go 250 yards and one touchdown with Emmanuel Sanders and Cortland Sutton both having a, a really strong game for your roster. So that's the thinking there. Um, it's more about the target distribution, how narrow it is on that team, and what you can get from those guys for the price. With that said, I almost included Keenum on my player grid, but he, I, I'm not going out of my way to use him. So he's fine to play, but that's how it would make sense to play Manny and Cortland Sutton without Keenum on your roster. Difference between being contrarian and just being stupid um, sometimes can be difficult. So that's a great question, and I think that's one way that a lot of people bleed out bankroll. Um, and this is why if you build your player grid first, if you build your tiers first and then look at ownership, then you take the, a play that you like that's low-owned instead of just saying, oh, here's a low-owned guy, let me take him. Always start with the research, the information, your own player grid. Optimally, you wouldn't even look at price until you've done all that, but you figure out who you like as a play, and then you look at ownership and make your decisions in tournaments from there. Um, good good uh, outside-the-box question from Giancarlo about Todd Haley's familiarity with the Steeler offense and if that will uh, help the Browns' defense at all. I don't think it will. Uh, the most he can give is information on, you know, what bothers Big Ben or, um, you know, teams don't know how to stop Antonio Brown, so there's, there's nothing there. And those are the types of things that you can pick up from film that you know over the years anyway that most teams would know. So I wouldn't give too much credit to that. Thoughts on rolling out two tight ends this week, Clay and Gronk. Uh, another option would be Doyle and Gronk. Um, it's fine. It, it really is fine. I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday. Doyle could get up to 20 points and Gronk, Gronk could get up to 30, and they're not mutually exclusive, so they could both do that on the same week. And uh, at their price tags, you'd feel amazing about that. So I think it's viable. I do think that running back is such a valuable position right now that you kind of um, box yourself out of the likelihood of hitting your roster's overall upside by doing that. So it, it's not something I'm wanting to do this week. I do think that it's something that is justifiable. But when you consider what you lose as far as not being able to roster a running back, that makes it a little tougher for me. If 70% of the field advances in a survivor contest, 
uh, would it be close to optimal to load up on players with the highest projected ownership? Uh, real quickly, if you have not yet joined uh, on my Twitter today, I posted the link to the one week season fantasy draft survivor contest. There's still a few entries left. Um, it's only $5 entry and it lasts for five weeks. So it's a really fun way for all of us to be in the same contest together. Um, would it be optimal to load up on guys with the highest projected ownership? I, I don't, like thinking that way because again that's playing to not lose instead of playing to win but uh, realistically yeah it should work at least until the the pool of players gets smaller just because the field is smart there's so much good information out there that the chalk goes to good players uh, melvin gordon is a good play this week chris hogan's a good play this week tom brady's a good play this week uh, keenan allen's a good play this week not my favorite compared to the other high price guys uh, Gronk's a good play this week. I think right now that's the highest projected player at each position. Uh, Camara is a good play this week. So by just sticking with chalk in cash games, you essentially um, say, look, I'm taking good plays and hopefully some of the field outsmarts themselves. Um, works even more in a survivor style tournament. So I will still be putting together what I just think is a good team without thinking about ownership but factoring ownership more heavily in a survivor uh, does make sense. Awesome question about the player grid uh, appearing to be skewed a little more toward DraftKings format. Uh, cheap tight ends take up more of the salary cap on FanDuel. This is the one place where it really makes a difference. Outside of this, um, PPR scoring is, is the other thing, but I usually notate if I like a player less on FanDuel in that instance but uh the tight end and salary thing is very important and yeah gronk would be bumped up he's really um far and away the best play on FanDuel at tight end just because the value isn't as strong it's not like you're paying 3k like you can on DraftKings. so um, on FanDuel, optimally you want to try to get gronk in there this week in your tight end slot MC Mack, what's the deal with Pat's ownership <laughs> for their defense? Uh, I honestly don't know. I don't ever roster the Patriots defense because they're so non-aggressive. Um, so they're not a big turnover team. They're not a big sacks team. Uh, the thinking, Levitan brought this up last night, um, that a lot of people are on them just because they're cheap. And Deshaun Watson's first game back on the road. Um, Will Fuller banged up. So, you know, 2400 for a defense looks pretty good. Um, that's not really a place I want to go myself. All right, last question we're going to hit before weather. Team jam them in. Kamara and David Johnson on the same team together. Absolutely. Um, with the value available, I'm thinking I, I put together a team with it, and I don't remember what it had for value, but obviously Cortland Sutton, probably Ryan Griffin, Danny Amendola. I think you can still fit a top wide receiver on that team as well. So taking all those points is awesome. Um, I like Kareem Hunt a lot this week, so I don't know if, if the extra salary spent and sacrifices elsewhere are going to end up being worth it to me. Um, you can kind of go from Amendola up to Chris Hogan or from Hunt up to David Johnson. Um, so that's a tough one for me, but um, definitely like the idea of Team Jamelman this week especially since people have stopped thinking about that after David Johnson was out last year. 
All right. This brings us to what everyone was waiting for, uh, what everyone came here for, uh, what probably some of you skipped ahead to, and that is the weather in Cleveland. So I don't think about weather throughout the week just because so often I get uh, tweets on Tuesday or Wednesday um, asking about weather, and people are, are using a lot of their creative energy on trying to figure out what the weather is going to be in the game and how they should react. And then by the time Saturday rolls around, um, weather's not an issue. This is a different situation. So uh, I have assessed things throughout the week, thinking about weather as being a non-issue in this game. That's the way I like to approach things until Saturday, just because weather typically is a non-issue. So moment of truth, is weather a non-issue in this Browns and Steelers game. This is a quote from Cleveland 19's Jeff Tanchak. Unless something significantly changes, which I doubt, we are looking at a high impact weather event Sunday and Sunday night. The latest data I'm seeing Friday morning is calling for widespread five plus inches of rain and locally seven plus inches. The heavy rain will start late Sunday night. So that means all day Sunday and Sunday night, we are looking at continuous heavy rain. Winds will be gusting up to 40 miles per hour at times. I have not seen a worse weather forecast for a Browns game in almost 16 years I have been here, and that includes snow events. I have no idea how they will be able to play, a football, play football or how people will be able to sit in that stadium and watch a game. Uh, first off, I feel like Browns fans would take that as a personal challenge. But as to how it impacts things, those of you who have been reading the site throughout the week know that I have Antonio Brown on everything right now. That is going to change. Uh, I can't imagine paying 8600 for him in cash games or probably in small field or single entry tournaments. Right now, there's, it's looking like there's even a chance this game might not play or they might move it to a different date. Um, now, if they move it to Monday or something and just, you know, keep it part of the same slate for the weekend, uh, that would be something to think about. But um, if they play this game in this weather, yeah, I'm going to have a hard time taking Antonio Brown um, with rain expected to be like that and weather or winds expected to be up to 40 miles an hour. That's also going to take James Conner out of consideration for me in cash games because uh, the big value that we were going to get from him was the targets that he was in line for. They've been lining up at wide receiver. They're not going to be able to throw screen passes in a win like this because when you float that ball out there, who knows what will happen. Um, so Conner is definitely bumped down a notch for me. Carlos Hyde is still an interesting play. I'm going to put him and Burkhead kind of level instead of putting Hyde clearly above Burkhead. Um, in this situation, sure, a running back can do fine, but if the opponent knows that the other team can't throw the deep ball, they can tighten up everything and really gear up to stop the run. So I'm a little more concerned now about Carlos Hyde's floor than I was before. Again, part of his value was the three to five catches we were expecting him to see. With all that said, I do still think there's a strong case to be made 
for going after Antonio Brown in a tournament. Um, if you're willing to take on the risk, you could do it in small field tournaments, single entry tournaments, high dollar tournaments. Anytime you can get Antonio Brown at say 10% ownership in a good matchup, even in a bad matchup, it just makes sense to do it. So I'm going to still have some exposure to Antonio Brown, probably in lower dollar tournaments. Um, I'll have to mess around and see if, if I can take that risk in high dollar tournaments, if I really think it's worth it. Um, but realistically, it's going to be hard for him to get one of those 35 or 40 point games that he can get. I do think he can still get you 18 to 25 points without too much trouble. When you're paying up for a guy, you're really looking for the opportunity for that explosive game. And I think that's the biggest thing that the wind will do is uh, obviously introduce a little more risk, but also make it far tougher for him to hit that ceiling. Uh, in the same way that Antonio Brown could put up 40 points against the Jaguars defense last year, he could put up 40 points in the worst weather this guy's seen in 16 years in Cleveland, but um, his chances are lower. And that introduces more risk, makes it less likely that you have to have Antonio Brown in order to win a tournament. Um, so that's why I will probably be moving him off of my high dollar tournament rosters and definitely be moving off of him in cash games. So again, uh, James Conner is no longer a lock for me in cash games, no longer a must play. Carlos Hyde has bumped down a notch for me. Um, Antonio Brown is no longer cash play for me. Uh, still in play for me in tourneys, the upside on some of these other guys, Josh Gordon, uh, you can still take a shot on them in tournaments. And the defense has obviously become a little bit more interesting as well with weather like this, uh, slick ball and slick field uh, turnovers can happen. So uh, that does it for the first edition of the one week season chat pod. If you are not yet a visitor on the site, check it out, oneweekseason.com. Lots of awesome stuff on there. If you're not yet a subscriber, just a reminder, I priced it at $39 for 12 months. I'm still not sure why. We have Evan Silva doing preseason, Levitan and me doing the uh, square table. You get every game broken down for you from top to bottom, ownership projections, uh, my weekly player grid of all the plays I am using that week. So, uh, yeah, 39 bucks for 12 months, and you get to uh, renew at that price every year if you subscribe before week two kicks off. Once week two kicks off, the price is going up to 59 uh, but everybody who subscribes before then is locked in at 39 for life. Uh, if you jumped to the weather portion at the end, uh, some cool stuff earlier in the pod, some strategy stuff in addition to stuff about this week. Um, I will see you next week on Thursday when the NFL Edge comes out. Um, in between now and then, I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards. Uh, and have a great weekend. Have a great start to next week.